0: Welcome to Axis Utah, I'm Tom Williams. What makes a $20 bill actually worth $20? In his new book, Naked Money, the third volume in his best-selling Naked series, Charles Whelan uses this seemingly simple question to open the door to the surprisingly colorful world of money and banking. The search for an answer triggers other questions along the way. Why does paper money even exist? Why do some nations like Zimbabwe in the 1990s print so much of it that becomes more valuable as toilet paper than as currency? How do central banks use the power of money creation to stop financial crises? Why does most of Europe share a common currency and why has that arrangement caused so much trouble? And will payment apps, Bitcoin, or other new technologies render, render all of this moot? We'll hear stories from Argentina, Zimbabwe, North Korea, America, China, and elsewhere around the globe. Charles Whelan is author of the bestsellers Naked Statistics and Naked Economics. He's a former correspondent for The Economist, and he's senior lecturer and policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College, where he teaches public policy and economics. From 2004 to 2012, he was senior lecturer in public policy at Harrison Harris School of Public Policy and University of Chicago, He's author also of The Centrist Manifesto, founder of The Centrist Project, lives in Hanover, New Hampshire with his family. Charles Winland, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah.
1: No, it's great to be with you.
0: Uh, So a little later in the program, I want to talk about The uh, the Centrist Manifesto, Centrist Project. Very interesting political season we've uh, we've got uh, going on.
1: Indeed, indeed.
0: (laughs) Uh, In fact, you ran for Congress at one point.
1: I did. I lost. Yeah. Which is why I had time to write this book.
0: <laughs> yeah, that must've been a very interesting experience.
1: I think uh there is nothing quite like running whether you win or lose. And I think probably even for something like school board or what have you. I'd been a policy wonk my whole life. It's very easy to sit behind a computer and think about fixing social security or dealing with carbon emissions or what have you, but until you actually have to get out and explain that to people and ask them for their votes and win if you're going to implement these things, I don't think you fully understand how the whole system works and the constraints on people who are making those policies.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we could shoot this briefly now and return to it later. So the centrist manifesto, what... what are you going for there? You're talking about polarization, I think, trying to solve polarization.
1: Exactly. This book came out a couple of years ago. I was looking at a politi- political system that was hyper-partisan, that was finding it harder and harder to act on all of the policy challenges that I saw. I envisioned at the time that things couldn't get much worse. <laughs> that was clearly <laughs> wrong. But it's the same basic idea that we've got major challenges on the fiscal front, on the environmental front, and dealing with poverty, income inequality, and so on. And the two parties, as we've seen this election cycle, are just so locked into their own team that we've lost the capacity to act on these challenges. I would say the real tragedy is not that we disagree. It's that the system has lost the capacity even to act on things where we do agree, corporate tax reform and so on. The centrist centrist manifesto was designed to kind of re-empower the political middle, thinking that there are a lot of people who didn't have a home in one party or the other, certainly in the extremes of the two parties, and that if we did not reinvent that fabric, that's the only place where compromise and deals are going to happen. So the idea then was to create a party of the middle that kind of takes the best of each political party uh, is a home where people can feel comfortable who've left one party or the other, and that this would be a force for kind of re-energizing and creating sanity in the political system.
0: So a centrist uh, party, if you will, meeting in the middle uh, from where you started to today's extraordinary political season, what are you more or less hopeful that that could happen?
1: A little bit of both. Mm -hmm. So one thing that we tried to do was not just to Kind of cut split the difference on every issue, we said, all right, well, what is it that people like about the Republican Party, and it's the respect for wealth creation, it's the emphasis on personal responsibility, and there's no reason why we we as a centrist party couldn't attach ourselves to those values and well, what is it that people like about the Democratic party? Well, there's a concern there for the traditionally disadvantaged. There is a concern for the environment that the Republicans have not shared recently, and we could make those important principles. So in the end, we kind of invented our movement as fiscally responsible because we really have to get our books in order. Environmentally responsible because, to my mind, that's the same as being fiscally responsible. If you live better today than you should by borrowing from China and leaving the debt for your children, that's not a whole lot different different than living better than you should because you'd spoil the environment and you leave the mess to your children so those two things to my mind fit neatly together but of course they would get you thrown out of one primary to the other as soon as you talked about curtailing entitlement programs which the math suggests we have to do you're done as a democrat and as soon as you talk about global warming being real you're done in a republican primary and I just don't see where that has to be the case
0: What do you think of uh, uh, our former governor, Governor John Huntsman, here in Utah is a part of a movement called No Labels. It seems to be kind of on similar turf. What do you think of No Labels movement?
1: I I really admire what Huntsman has done. I'm very familiar with what No Labels is doing. I think ideologically we're in the same space, which is, look, we've got to solve these problems. They actually, I think, give the the problem solvers mantle to people they think are going to solve problems and so on. We've taken a slightly different tactical path in that we believe that the two parties have become the problem. That It's very hard to get incumbents to leave the comfort of their party, in part because they're worried about being challenged in a primary by somebody who's to the right or to the left of them. Democrats worry about their left flank, Republicans about the right flank. So we've embraced the tactic of supporting independence, particularly in the US Senate, where just a few of them could really make a difference. But in terms of the overall strategy, we're exactly where they are, which is, look, these are serious challenges, sane people need to come together and work through them, and it's going to have to require cooperation of people across the political spectrum, maybe not the extremes, but certainly everybody in the middle.
0: I want to get to naked money, but one more question. It seems like I'm asking everybody that comes on the program for whatever subject about the phenomenon that is Donald Trump. And I wonder what your what your diagnosis, what your take of that is. Is that going to fracture the Republican Party? Are we going to have something new come out of that, or, or will we settle back into something more traditional, do you think?
1: I think both parties are at risk of fracturing. Obviously, Donald is the more bizarre phenomenon at the moment, but I actually just came from giving a talk on the labor market. And what you see, I think the most salient development in my adult lifetime is this growing gap. We talk about income inequality, but when you really drill down on it, what you're seeing is a major and growing gap between the education haves and have-nots, that people who are relatively highly skilled have benefited from the Internet, they've benefited from technology, they've benefited from globalization and trade, they've benefited from immigration, and relatively low-skilled folks have been punished by all those things. Their jobs are replaced by technology, globalization, immigration, and so on. And that the frustration you're seeing, we've had... Relatively stagnant real wages for just about everybody from the middle of the income distribution on down. And I think some of those folks are lashing out and attaching themselves to Donald Trump. Some of them are lashing out and attaching themselves to Bernie Sanders. But to my mind, this is all a manifestation of people who just feel that they've been left behind economically. And that's, you know, the Republicans are going to have to decide. They've traditionally been kind of small business, small government there's not really a piece there about taking care of folks who've been left behind. Trump's been speaking to that group. I don't think his policies make no sense at all, but certainly they're resonating. And Bernie, on the other hand, is talking about just a bigger state, a more inclusive and expansive social safety net, but again, addressing the same basic sense of vulnerability. And that is the force that the political system is going to have to deal with going forward. Hmm.
0: So uh, you have the successful series of books uh, to get into Naked Money here. So Naked Economics, uh, Naked Statistics, now Naked Money. By the way, New York Times, I, I love this quote. Um, they described your Naked Statistics. They said you're the Dave Barry of the coin-flipping set. Do you, do you embrace that, or what, uh, what do you think about that?
1: I do. There's no reason why you can't be a little funny and irreverent when talking about e- even serious topics. Uh, so absolutely, I think that, what all three of the books have tried to do, and certainly the first two have proved successful at it, is to take really important, seemingly complex topics that have often been totally obfuscated by academics and technical writers, and just drill down on the essence of what they are, why they matter, but in a way that's its not dumb. It's not dumbed down. It's not meant to be patronizing. It's just, look, this is the essence of what's happening here in an interesting way that's heavy on anecdotes, humor, examples, and so on. And people so far have responded to that.
0: By the way, if we connect up uh, politics, which we were talking about, to, say, monetary policy, you talk about that in this book, um, you cite the example of uh, Rick Perry, former governor of Texas, who was running for president and uh, called Ben Bernanke's monetary policies treasonous. <laughs> this is an example of how it—you know there, there's not a solid division between the two
1: no money is political and has always been political and part of the reason is that what we're also talking about in addition to money is inflation or deflation i mean the the federal reserve and government more generally is responsible for ensuring the value of the currency And, of course, if the currency loses value, you get inflation because everything costs more in dollars. And if it gains value, as has happened periodically throughout U.S. history, including to a great degree during the Great Depression, then you get deflation, prices falling. And different groups are affected very differently by those two phenomena. So if you happen to be a debtor, you really want inflation because you owe $1,000 to the bank – If the value of that currency loses a lot of its value, then the money you're paying back has been significantly depreciated. You're effectively having part of your debt wiped out by inflation. Conversely, if you owe a fixed amount to the bank and prices are dropping so the money you have is more valuable, then you can be crushed by your debts. And this, of course, happened long before Rick Perry. If you go back to William Jennings Bryan, remember the Cross of Gold speech in 1896, really what he was talking about? was the fact that farmers in the West were being crushed by falling prices. They're getting less when they sell their crops, but their debts are, are the same. and They're fixed in nominal terms. So when you're getting less from what you sell and you owe just as much as you used to, you're being crushed by falling prices. So what they wanted was really more expansive monetary policy to bail them out. So Rick Perry was not the first.
0: Uh, and this goes way back we'll get into this as well uh, you know the famous uh, fight Andrew Jackson uh, didn't want a central bank and he finally got his way um, let's talk more about this when we come back from a break I'll, I'll ask Charles Whelan to, to take us back to basics uh, the the question we began the program with what makes a $20 bill actually worth $20 we'll consider that $20 bill uh, Naked Money is the book subtitle is a revealing look at what it is and why it matters the author is Charles Whelan more following the break Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the Cafe Ibis Roasting Company's second annual Randy Worth Half Century Ride.
2: Saturday, May 21st, proceeds to benefit enhanced bird habitats and build a downtown bike hub. Registration information at
0: randyworthhcr.org. Experts say if we switched our energy sources to renewables, we could reap huge financial
1: benefit. The benefits exceed the costs by a factor of five to twenty. You find a range of between one trillion and more than four
0: trillion U.S. dollars per year. All it would take is the will to do it. I'm Steve Curwood, and that's
1: next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at ten on Utah Public Radio.
0: My guest for the hour is Charles Whelan. He's author previously of Naked Economics and Naked Statistics. The new book is Naked Money. And uh, we'll be hearing stories from Argentina, Zimbabwe, North Korea, America, China, elsewhere on the globe. Whelan in this book demystifies the curious world behind the paper in our wallets and the digits in our bank accounts. Later in the program, we'll take a look at the uh, future and uh, Bitcoin and other new technologies and uh, how that might change our uh, use of uh, money. Uh, Charles Whelan is author uh, previously of Naked Statistics and Naked Economics, as I said, former correspondent for The Economist. He's senior lecturer and policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. That's toll free, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email, upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Charles Whelan, you, you begin your book by asking us to take the $20 bill out of our wallet or purse and look at it up close, um, and the, the central question, what makes a $20 bill actually worth
1: $20? Because somebody will give you a bunch of stuff for it. <laughs> There's really, I mean, that, that as simple as that answer is, that's, when you drill down on it, what's going on? Uh it's not it has no intrinsic worth. You can't take it to any organ of the government and get anything official for. It. You can't get gold, you can't get silver, the treasury won't give you stuff for it. But when I walk out of my office down to Main Street and I'm hungry, if I wave that twenty dollar bill around, someone will give me what we now recognize is roughly twenty dollars worth of stuff. We know, you know, that that's gonna be probably lunch for two, you know, uh, some athletic equipment, anything I might want, parking for a long, long time. So in the end, it's the confidence, not only that you can get things of value for it, but that other people will accept it, knowing that they will get things of value for it.
0: Now, at times in our history and the history of other nations, the currency has been tied to, say, gold. It's been tied to something specific. Uh, and that's a little easier, I guess, for people to grasp. But, uh, you know, when you... Yeah,
1: s- it's, easier to, it's easier to grasp when you think about the arc of how we got where we are, because it is very strange that all of the world's industrialized economies, without exception, have paper money with no intrinsic value. If you go back 5,000 years, people tended to use commodities as money, and that's very easy to get your money around, your mind around. So if we all grew wheat... It's very easy to trade somebody a bushel of wheat for animal skins or whatever else you wanted, and different societies used different things. It might have been tobacco or animals or shiny shells or what have you. As time went on, different societies adopted different commodities, and some adopted precious metals because they were smaller and more portable, and you could have more value packed in a relatively small coin, and oftentimes... Regime government regimes would stamp them, and then you have official coins, but it's really not that radically different than a bushel of wheat, if as long as you believe that there's a certain amount of precious metal in the coin. So that's all reasonably understandable. Then you get to a point in the United States and elsewhere, people decide, I don't really want to carry around a lot of gold and silver. What I'll do is I'll put it in a bank, and they'll give me a paper certificate that says it's there. And I'll just use that paper certificate to conduct commerce, and now it's paper money, but it's still backed by something. It's a little trickier than gold and silver, because when I give the paper to somebody, they have to actually believe it's legitimate. They actually have to believe that the bank still has the gold and silver that was on deposit and so on. But it's not that hard to get your mind around paper money backed by a commodity. But then it's kind of like taking the training wheels off a bike. At some point, when people don't really – take the paper money to get the gold or silver they just believe it's there we kind of took away the gold and silver so during the great depression one of the things that roosevelt did was suspend gold convertibility so at that point you could no longer take your dollars to the government and get gold and silver in return and later on richard nixon ended the gold window for foreign countries that they could no longer bring their u.s dollars and get gold from the treasury and at that point it was just paper
0: and then that gets us into psychology, right, and and uh, collective confidence, I guess, in, in the government.
1: And there's some strange examples of this in the book. So, for example, India has a currency and a legal structure that looks a lot like the United States. There's a central bank, the Reserve Bank of India, and they're responsible for protecting the value of the currency. There's a paper currency that is not backed formally by gold or silver, And the laws are the same as they are in the United States, that if you have a rupee note and it's torn or soiled or anything else, but as long as it has two serial numbers, it's still a legal bill. And in fact, if you take it to a bank, they're obligated to give you a clean, crisp new one. Which is exactly the law in the United States, and I would imagine you certainly I have accepted all kinds of torn bills, ripped bills. I accepted one that had George Washington's face cut out once. They have phone numbers on them and so on. But I know if I have to, I can go take it to a bank and get a new one. But of course, since I know that nobody actually bothers to do that because anyone else will accept it, knowing that it can be redeemed for a new bill. India, for reasons I do not fully understand, does not have that confidence. So even though the law is the same, people have decided that they won't take a soiled or ripped note. And, of course, once enough people decide that, then nobody else will take a soiled or ripped note because they they know it will be difficult to pass along. And as soon as I show up in the country at the airport and get in a, a taxi with a driver and he tries to give me a ripped rupee note, I won't take it. So it's just the psychology. The law is the same. But in two different countries, the psychology of the currency is different. And in one country, people will take just about anything you give them, and in the other they will not.
0: This is a, this kind of an analogy to a or similar situation with the psychology I'm thinking about to you know, run on a bank, right? If you get enough people who are not confident that their money is actually there, uh, that can cause big problems.
1: Yes, and this is a really important piece of understanding banking in general. There is an inherent vulnerability to banking however you construe it, shadow banking, traditional banking, the re- repurchase market they're all just fancy versions of a bank and what a bank does is take money from depositors who are effectively lending money to the bank and then they turn around and lend it to somebody else and they take a cut in the process this is actually a really important purpose in society for those who are making deposits we're getting paid a return on our capital so if I'm saving for my children's college education I actually get what economists would call a rental rate on my savings so it, it, my savings are protected And they're growing in value. And on the borrowing side, there are people who want to start restaurants. There are people who want to go to college but don't have quite enough and so on, mortgages and the like. This is a really, really important function. It's one of the most advanced things in a modern society. Banks are great. But the problem is they are taking money from depositors and essentially promising that you can get it back whenever you want. And they're lending it to people who are making long-term investments in houses and businesses and may not be able to pay those loans back right now, even if the fundamental loan is solvent. Mm. And that creates the possibility for a bank run in any kind of institution that is borrowing and lending. And as you point out, there's a big psychological component, which is if for some reason I believe that this bank isn't going to be able to pay me back, I'm going to rush and get as much money back as I can right now. This, of course, is the famous scene in It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey is trying to face down a bank run. But as you point out, this can take down a perfectly healthy institution. If for some reason, you know, let's suppose that someone falls down and has a heart attack in front of a bank, and people cluster around him and say, oh my goodness, there must be a bank run going on in my bank, and you rush in and demand your money. Well, as soon as people see that, they will all demand their money, and no... Normal financial institution has all that money in the bank in the vault, so they can't honor your payments. And at that point, you could have a, a bank failure or even a string of bank failures.
0: You say in the book, the history of finance is also a history of financial panics, which is uh, you know uh, demonstrably true. Also, kind of makes you nervous as you know when's when's the next panic coming, and and it could come from something pretty simple.
1: It should make you nervous. You know, everybody's familiar with 2008, obviously. Maybe we'll come back to that. People are knowledgeable, if they don't, even if they don't remember, of the Great Depression, which was at bottom of financial panic. We think about the stock market crash, but really what made that crisis so long and deep was all the bank failures that the stock market crash set in motion. But there are you know, there were panics in 1907. There were panics in the 1890s. The first one on record in the United States was, I think, like 1797, when people surrounded a jail in New York City that was holding speculators that were believed to have set it in motion. But, yes, because of the vulnerability I've described, no matter what the financial system looks like, because at bottom it is this lending and borrowing function – It's always vulnerable to crises of some sort or another, and I think the operative question now, coming out of 2008, is have we done? Have we put in place sufficient protections to protect against that next panic?
0: So yeah, let's treat this uh, right now. Then, Uh, so 2008, there's a lot of debate uh, and a lot of angst, and this you you see that in you know Bernie Sanders supporters and Trump supporters. that the banks were bailed out, the, the rich got richer, the rich were not, who misbehaved were not punished. Um, did our system, did our central bank, did our, did our leaders handle 2008 correctly, do you think?
1: For the most part, I think they did, which isn't to say that people shouldn't be very angry about what happened. When you get into a financial panic, the central bank, so in our case the Federal Reserve, Has the responsibility for trying to manage that so that it does not infect the rest of the broader economy once banks start failing they will pull down with them other healthy businesses and people who have absolutely nothing to do with bad lending or reckless decisions will suffer enormously so the analogy I use in the book which I think holds up is it's a bit like somebody who's smoking in bed it may be a very stupid decision but as soon as that house catches on fire it poses a risk to the rest of the neighborhood so we have to put out the fire even if that behavior was distasteful to us that is what the fed had to do in two thousand eight it's what they failed to do by the way in the nineteen thirties which is why that crisis was so much worse than what we went through in two thousand eight now putting out the fire in a financial context really means two things one is propping up the banking system so you don't get massive bank failures And that's what the Fed did through its emergency lending programs. That's what TARP did, which came out of Congress, to try and infuse those financial institutions with capital. And there's no doubt that those institutions have been smoking in bed. But the the other possibility of letting them burn down was just too damaging for the rest of the global economy. The second thing that a central bank has to do is provide stimulus for the rest of the economy to make up for the flagging demand that's caused by this financial crisis, that comes through in the form of lower interest rates. If we can get people to buy more with borrowed money, if we can get the value of assets to go up, which is what happens when interest rates go down, they'll feel wealthier and they'll purchase more. Those were really the two things that the Federal Reserve helped by Congress did post-2008. They lowered interest rates dramatically. QE1 and QE2 were just different variations on that. They lowered long-term interest rates by buying assets that they'd not traditionally bought, but it was just a different riff on the same basic song. And then, obviously, they provided lots and lots of liquidity to the banking system so we could get through what would have otherwise been a really, really bad crisis.
0: Are are there further structural reforms that should be taken to to protect us in the future?
1: Yes. (laughs) And the question is, have we done that sufficiently? So it's really easy to think about theoretically. Which is, okay, given that these institutions are really good for society when they're working well, but that they can impose huge costs on the rest of us when they're not, the theoretical rationale for us regulating them is very, very strong. I I think even my former colleagues at the University of Chicago would say there's clearly a role for some kind of financial regulation. And then you say, okay, well, how can we preserve what we like about the banking system, broadly construed, and minimize the damage that they burn us all down. And again, theoretically, it's really easy. Well, first, we might wanna regulate the stuff that we know is most risky and is most likely to start a fire. So if we stick with the analogy, let's just, let's make it illegal to smoke in bed, because we know how dangerous that is. You're just not gonna do it because it's dangerous for the rest of us. And, and indeed, things like the VOCA rule, which prohibited financial institutions from making their own trades, that. Were potentially risky that could put their capital at risk. That's in the spirit of no smoking in bed. The second thing we might do is, okay, even if you do something stupid, let's try and insulate your stupid behavior from the rest of society. So that would be the equivalent, all right, you can smoke in bed or you might do it anyway. We're going to require sprinklers. So that when you set your house on fire, it won't infect the residents. Well, that would be things like capital requirements. And, in fact, what we've done since 2008 is we've required financial institutions to hold more capital so that if things go wrong, there's a bigger buffer. And then the last piece is this kind of systemic risk, which is are there some institutions where we just can't – They're so big, so influential, so interchanged or interconnected with the rest of the global economy, that if something goes bad there, they're going to take us down. And that is what we did with regard to institutions that are deemed to be systemically significant. And those have a higher level of scrutiny, different capital requirements, and there's a new level of regulatory power that the government has to require things of those large institutions that were not previously required.
0: This is, I think, there was some feeling. Uh, I don't know. Some people were saying, or it kind of became a bit of conventional wisdom prior to 2008 that um, we had successfully evened out, you know, wild fluctuations in the economy. Uh, And then 2008 hit. Oh yeah, we
1: we declared victory. We declared victory a little (laughs) prematurely. We did. I would say there's the great the great moderation. So many people listening might be old enough to remember the 1970s, and that was a period when inflation hit 20 percent. Interest rates under Paul Volcker, who was chair of the Fed at the time, went extremely high in order to try and bring inflation down. That imposed enormous costs on the rest of the economy, a very deep recession in the early 80s, did profound damage to manufacturing industries and other places that were dependent on, on credit because it was so expensive to borrow and so on. But once Paul Volcker broke the back of inflation, beginning around the mid-1980s, we get this long and sustained 30-year period of very moderate price increases. You know, Inflation stays in check never more than a couple percent a year, which is a very healthy rate. And far smaller fluctuations in economic output. So after the recession of the 80s, we have some bumps, such as when the dot-com bubble burst in the late 90s, when the stock market corrected in 87. But these are really small bumps in the road relative to what we've been through heretofore in U.S. history. And you've got relative price stability. So, yes, economists started calling this the great moderation and kind of declared victory that said, look, we figured out central banking. We can, we've beaten inflation, and we've used our tools as central bankers to provide kind of steady growth without the wild fluctuations that have, uh, have punished h- humans pretty much from the beginning.
0: Uh, here's a question that's come in. This is from Peter, who uh, emailed us to upraccess at gmail.com. You can as well, upraccess at gmail.com. We're talking with Charles Whelan. He's author previously of Naked Economics and Naked Statistics. The new book is called Naked Money. This is what Peter says. Sorry, I lost the link. Recently I saw a video in which the author claimed the four largest U.S. banks currently have 55T, I don't know if that's 55,000 U.S. dollars at risk in commodities futures. If this is true, what is the potential effect on U.S. finance? Does that ring a bell? The
1: the honest answer is I don't know. I mean, Mm -hmm. part of what we try and do on the regulatory front is that first piece that I mentioned about smoking in bed. I don't know how risky those, those particular positions are. Because, you know, you may have outstanding positions with commodities, but you can hedge against it. You can put, you know, nothing's too risky if you've got sufficient capital on hand uh, against to, to post against losses and what have you. Um, you know, so, for example, if I said, boy, someone just bought a $10 million house, isn't that really risky? I'm going to say, well, how leveraged are they? Do they, they buy a $10 million house and put $100,000 down, in which case if it loses some of its value, they're crushed? Or did they pay in cash, in which case, if it loses half of its value, they're still just fine. So I think it, a lot of it has to do with the details of how risky those trades actually are, and more important, what kind of reserves they're holding to offset anything that might go wrong.
0: Um, I want to Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about China. And uh, that's come up repeatedly in the campaign. D- Donald Trump t- says he'll get a better deal with China, and uh, there, there's some complaint about China – uh, consistently undervaluing their currency, which, of course, helps uh, with their trade. Um, I want to talk about new currencies as well, uh, uh, currency that's uh, you don't even see, Bitcoin, for example. We'll talk about uh, those two subjects and other subjects as well with Charles Whelan. His new book is Naked Money, a revealing look at what it is and why it matters. More following the break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments. A Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University. If you hear the dogs, keep going. If you see the torches in the woods, keep going. If they're shouting after you, keep going. Don't ever stop, keep going. If you want a taste of freedom, keep going. Harriet Tubman. Born a slave, Tubman fled north to freedom, later making 19 trips to the south as an underground railroad conductor, leading some 300 slaves to freedom. A nurse during the Civil War, she served the Union Army as a scout and a spy, and was active in the women's suffrage movement. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University, providing students another perspective of current societal issues. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu.
0: You're listening to Access Utah, Time: Tom Williams. Pleased to have as our guest uh, today, Charles Whelan who's a new bu- um, a book in the Naked series is called Naked Money, a revealing look at what it is and why it uh, matters. You can join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Toll-free 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So uh, the author of Naked Money, Charles Wheeler, I have to ask you this. What do, what do you think about the new, uh, the changes to the proposed change to the currency, Harriet Tubman, will uh, replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill, for example?
1: Well, I think it's only fair that Andrew Jackson goes instead of Alexander Hamilton. I mean, there's such a pathetic irony that Jackson was a guy who opposed banks, hated paper currency fought our central bank and tried to kill the Bank of the United States. In some ways, he was antithetical to everything our financial system has become. Meanwhile, Hamilton is a guy who argued for more central authority, a modern banking system. So the idea of kind of taking Hamilton off and leaving Jackson on made no sense whatsoever. Obviously, I think it's a great idea to put a more diverse group of folks on the currency, but it, or, uh, Jackson was a guy I wanted to see go. There is uh, some irony, I guess, in that these new folks are going to appear on the bills probably as we're likely to use fewer and fewer of these bills, paper money, as we go forward because of the changes in technology.
0: Let me talk about the technology. It's fascinated by Bitcoin, which is basically, it's, it's an invention of some person who may be anonymous, maybe not, uh, who just invented this algorithm. And you, you mine for, you, if you solve the algorithm, you get this Bitcoin, and then you can actually buy things with with Bitcoin. Is this the future, do you think?
1: It is not the future. I think it's important, first of all, to distinguish between two different things. One is our current dollar-based system or yen or euro if you're somewhere else in the world where you have some official government-backed currency where the government's responsible for the value of the currency, even if they don't give you something in return when you show up bearing it. And Bitcoin, which is a kind of private currency that's been created out of the Internet, we can still use the dollar electronically, so you may show up at a Starbucks and use your phone to pay. That's just a different variation of using the old currency. It's really in many ways not different. It's not any different than writing a check, which is you, what you're paying is still denominated in dollars. There's still an in- intermediary that at the end of the day is going to take the money from my account and move it to yours. That's just a fancier way of using our old money and a lot of convenient things to recommend it. Bitcoin is saying, wait a minute, we're going to ditch the dollar, too, and have our own currency. And as you point out, this is an algorithm that was written by a programmer. There are reports in the last couple of days that we may actually have found the person who wrote the program. But for folks who are not terribly familiar with Bitcoin, the way you get Bitcoins is you hook up your computer to the network and you solve very complicated math problems. Therefore, the more computing power you have, the more computers, the more likely it is that you'll solve one of these problems or complex factoring problems. It's called mining, in part because it's like mining for gold, which is you just throw lots and lots of energy at trying to find something of value, whether it's a Bitcoin or a nugget of gold. And then eventually, if you're lucky, your efforts are rewarded. But people who get these Bitcoins and then spend them and buy things. But they can only buy things because there are other people who have said, I'll give you something for Bitcoin. It's that confidence game that we described earlier. There's some early entrepreneurs who said, yeah, I'll give you a pizza or something of more value if you give me the Bitcoin. That kind of set in motion this process where Bitcoin actually has some value. But I would argue it fails in the core responsibilities of money. Any money should do three things. One, it should be a unit of account which means when you're doing a transaction, you think in terms of that unit of account. So when you go to the store and somebody says, yeah, that's going to cost you 57 bags of Cheetos, you're like, well, I don't even know how much that is. You don't think in terms of bags of Cheetos. If they say it's going to cost $57, you know exactly what that means. If they say it's going to cost 10 Bitcoin... Do you know what that means? I don't. Right. So we don't, Bitcoin fails at present as a unit of account. Nobody, even people who are using it as a transaction mechanism, are not thinking in terms of Bitcoin. Second, it's got to be a store of value, which means if you're not spending it, you put it someplace, you hope when you go back in a week or two or a year or two, it's worth roughly what it was when you put it there. Bitcoin fails miserably on that account, too, because the value of Bitcoin relative to dollars and other things has fluctuated all over the place. And if it's gaining value, that's really bad for anybody who has debts denominated in Bitcoin. And if it's losing value, it's obviously anybody who's—it's bad for anyone who's saved in terms of Bitcoin. Um, and then the last is a medium of exchange, which is how easy is it to use to buy things. And this is one where it actually does pretty well. I mean, the the beauty of Bitcoin lies in the technology. A lot of people think even if the money fails, the technology will endure. It's, it kind of combines the best of a credit card – with the anonymity of cash. So if you want to move a lot of money from here to Russia anonymously, you can't do it in cash because it's just hard to get on the plane with a suitcase. You can't do it electronically through conventional methods because you'll leave a paper trail. But Bitcoin allows you to do that. Of course, that raises the final question here, which is who wants to move lots of money around the world without being traced, and that's kind of a nefarious group of characters for the most part.
0: Yeah, there, there's been a kind of a association, negative associations there. You, I wonder if you could connect this up. And I, I think you've outlined this previously, but you begin your chapter on the future of money, um, connecting Bitcoin way back to the island of Yap and their giant stone money.
1: Yeah, so this is one of my favorite chapters. It's kind of the most philosophical about what money is and. It starts with an anecdote that I think I first saw on Planet Money to give them their due, although the island of Yap has been famous among people who study money for a long time. And Yap uses these giant stone wheels with holes in the middle. It's kind of like a little washer, only it could be eight feet in in diameter and weigh thousands of pounds. And for really big transactions, that's what you use. So if your kid goes off to college at the University of Yap, you might give somebody one of these giant wheels. And they come, they're mined from an island that's hundreds of miles away. You've got to row in a canoe to get them, which is, of course, what makes them scarce and valuable and so on. There's this story that, that I saw in Planet Money where somebody was coming back in a boat with one of these big stones, and in a storm it went overboard and went to the bottom of the ocean and couldn't be recovered. And what's curious about it is they didn't say, well, that's lost. What they said is, okay, well, we know where it is, and we know who owned it when it went overboard, so let's just treat it as if it still exists. And that that seems very weird that you could have money go overboard and still work, but of course it makes complete sense, because the way these wheels worked is they were too big to move around anywhere. If if you had one, you kind of keep it on your front lawn, and when your son or daughter went off to college, all you would do is kind of make a record that the university now owns the stone. It doesn't actually move it may still be in your front lawn, only somebody, and when the university pays a salary to someone, they may say, okay, you now own this wheel that's in somebody else's front lawn. So the fact that it's now at the bottom of the ocean doesn't actually make any difference. The person who owned it could now say to me, well, it's in the bottom of the ocean, everyone knows that, now you own it. Right? So when you get, once you get your mind around, it goes right back to the idea of confidence that we spoke about, and more important, it introduces this idea that money's just a record-keeping device. It's a, it's a store of value that if you rake my lawn... I give you currency, and that just signals to you that I kind of owe you something of value. And when you use that money to give it to somebody else, you say, well, somebody owes me something of value. Now I'm transferring it to you. And in theory, you could do that with just a giant spreadsheet. It's all about just keeping track of who owes whom what. And the stones worked whether they were at the bottom of the ocean. Paper currency works because you actually pass things around like poker chips. But in theory, we could do it electronically as well. We just keep track of who did what and that the, tra- the trail of value as it works its way through the economy.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking with Charles Whelan. We're talking about uh, the third in his very successful Naked series, the new one is Naked Money. I want to talk about the U.S. and China. And in this chapter, you open up a very interesting uh, story. You say in November 2009, President Obama made his first uh, visit to China. And in the months prior to that meeting, New York Times reported that Chinese officials were asking their American counterparts extensive and detailed questions about the legislation that would eventually become the Affordable Care Act. And you say this wasn't just out of politeness.
1: Yeah, no, it wasn't out of some deep-seated interest in American health (laughs) care. This was, I think, the example I use in the book. This is like somebody who's loaned you money for your house, who expresses a lot of interest when you come back and borrow some more money to buy a boat, and they want to know a lot about the boat not because they really care about you as a yachtsman but because they're a major creditor and they're a little concerned about you going out and spending even more money. The uh, China is America's largest creditor along with Japan. They have loaned us tremendous amounts of money and they do that by buying the treasury debt that's issued by the US government. And when Obama went over there, they wanted to make sure that the Affordable Care Act wasn't going to impose massive new expenses on America such that we wouldn't be able to pay back our outstanding debt. There's so many things that are strange about this relationship, and that's what the chapter in the book explores. To begin with, in history it's very anomalous for a relatively poor country, which China is, to be loaning lots and lots of capital to a relatively rich country, which we are. But, of course, we've been locked in this kind of codependent relationship where because we've been what I would describe as kind of fiscally reckless – in order to pay our bills, we need to borrow heavily from abroad, and China needs to keep lending us money because it does two things. One is for some fairly complex reasons, it suppresses the value of the Chinese currency, which makes its exports more cheaper for the rest of the world. And second, by loaning us money, it makes us able to buy those exports that they're selling. So their economy depends on buying treasury bonds because it suppresses the value of the yuan. And our economy depends on them continuing to borrow lots and lots of money from us. But as I explore in the chapter, we can't keep borrowing at that level forever, and they need to develop an economy that is less dependent on a cheap currency and exports to the rest of the world.
0: So th- with that is foundation, uh, let me bring it forward to the, to the current uh, political campaign. Uh, one of the main planks of Donald Trump's um, campaign. He says uh, he's going to get us a better deal with with China. He's going to get, I guess, get tougher. He's going to get a better deal. Is, is that structurally possible, probable?
1: Well, well, let's explore one of the things that is perhaps most nonsensical about this. So I think a lot of people would say that China has manipulated their currency over the last 20 years, which is to say that the yuan is cheaper relative to the dollar than it should be. So when we buy goods from China, they cost less than they would if the currency were at a market-determined level. But, but when Donald Trump says he's going to get us a better deal, what that means is we're now going to pay more for the things that we buy from China. Right? So where else in your life does someone say they're going to get you a better deal, and that means you're going to, buy, you're going to pay more for the goods that you buy from china now he's saying that because he believes you know and it's quite debatable that it would then create jobs by promoting american exports because our goods will seem cheaper over there there'll be fewer industries re- replaced by chinese imports and so on but at bottom what he's saying is you're going to pay more for everything that you currently buy from china that's in to most people not a better deal
0: you uh talk we just have a couple minutes left you talk a lot about about the uh, central bank and, uh, with, with all of these topics, not inherently sexy, but of course you, you, uh, they're important. And, and I want to get to the importance. This is, um, a quote that you, uh, have in the beginning of your chapter on gold. Robert Mundell, Nobel Prize Lecture 1999. He says, had the price of gold been raised in the late 1920s, or alternatively, had the major central banks pursued policies of price stability instead of adhering to the gold standard, there would have been no Great Depression, no Nazi revolution, and no World War II. Uh, That's a pretty bold statement. It illustrates the power of monetary policy.
1: The power of monetary policy, and I think the the foible of believing that a gold standard is better than what we have, and there are, by the way, two presidential candidates still in the race who think and have said at various points that we ought to go back on the gold standard, which makes no sense whatsoever, despite its intuitive appeal, and the reason for that is that when we get into a financial crisis, and we've discussed already why that's just something that we're always vulnerable to, the central bank is the body that needs to protect us against a financial panic or crisis. And to do that, they need two tools. One, I've already mentioned, which is they need to help the banks, and they need to provide liquidity. And second, they need to stimulate the rest of the economy. Both of those things are harder and, in some cases, impossible if you're still on a gold standard. So it's impossible to just kind of create new reserves and loan them to the bank if they have to be backed by gold which is why we were unable to do that in the 1930s. And it's also very difficult to cut interest rates if you're on a gold standard. Uh, it's not impossible, but in the 1930s, the U.S. resisted low, the equivalent of lower interest rates because we were worried that our gold stocks would flow to the rest of the world. If people could get higher interest rates somewhere else, they'd take their gold and you know to France or to Great Britain, and that the outflow of gold would be very bad for the United States. So the gold standard hobbles the central bank in its two key responsibilities, saving the banks and lowering interest rates to stimulate the rest of the economy. So it's a really, really bad place to be when conflict strikes. And the Mundell quote, of course, says, look, that's exactly what went wrong in the Great Depression, is we were unable to stop falling prices and massive bank failures. And all the disruption in the 30s, he argues, led to the terrible things that happened in the 1940s.
0: Well, there's much else uh, in the book. Fascinating stories. Um, uh, in the, the book opens with a trip to, uh, or, or at least a look at uh, money in North Korea. Just many other stories. Uh, you'll have to get the book and read it. Naked Money is the book, latest in the Naked series, which also includes Naked Economics and Naked Statistics. Charles Whelan is the author. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. This stuff matters, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it.
0: And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.
2: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. Find out about the 1923 flash flood in Willard for which no one was prepared. First, this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Mud sandbags, water down State Street, you may remember the Salt Lake City floods of 1983 and maybe even those of 1952. But did you know about the 1923 flash flood that left the northern Utah town of Willard completely underwater? A severe thunderstorm rolled in from the west and hit Willard and its neighboring town of Perry at 8:30 p.m. on August 13th, 1923. A wall of water rushed out of Willard Canyon, quickly leveling the city's powerhouse and instantly submerging lowland fields and houses. The flood shut down automobile traffic along Highway 89, while mud and debris buried the tracks of the Utah-Idaho Central Railroad line. For Brigham City parents, the night of the storm was especially long. The flash flood stranded a group of teens attending a party in Willard. Fortunately, none of them were harmed, but others were not so lucky. Mary Ellen Ward and her visiting daughter-in-law drowned when floodwaters washed away their house. Mary Ellen's granddaughter Sylvia was found alive the next morning in a haystack just a few feet away from her grandmother's body. Rescue workers rushed Sylvia to the D hospital in Ogden. Governor Charles Mabee responded to the disaster quickly and deployed the Utah National Guard to clear the roads. A county relief committee was also organized to collect funds to relieve the devastated farmers. But the property loss was enormous. The Box Elder News reported that hundreds of fine farms have been covered with rock and gravel, crops washed away, animals and poultry destroyed, and orchards ruined. The loss will run into hundreds of thousands of dollars. In fact, it was October before the sanitary conditions in Willard again met state health standards. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were provided by Rebecca Anderson. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council. I'm Megan Van Frank. The family kitchen table will soon be an interactive device. It's a touch screen display. Up to five people can use it at a time. You can research recipes from there. You can check your
1: email. In the morning, you can have your coffee. And you can read the news.
2: The Kitchen of the Future. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason.
1: Wake up with Good Reason
0: Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio.
2: Utah Public Radio is a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.